Good morning. Um, I would like to start off this morning by talking about something that's very near and very dear to my heart. Um, this is something that I'm pretty sure that a lot of people in this room have very strong feelings about. Um, while there might be some people in this room who don't care for it at all, a few of you who might be completely indifferent, um, for those of you who like this thing, you probably love this thing. Um, if you enjoy it, you probably need it every day. If it's a part of your daily life, you might not be able to begin your day. You might not be able to smile, say hello to, or even look at the people that you love until you have consumed this thing. So have I said enough to help you figure out what I'm talking about? Coffee. coffee. Um, well, not every person loves coffee. American humans love coffee to the tune of $74.2 billion per year. The coffee industry in the United States provides 1.7 million jobs, and worldwide, the coffee industry ranks in value behind only one other industry, and that's crude oil. Coming together over a cup of coffee is something that crosses cultural boundaries and brings people together. And the love of coffee has even seeped into our church culture. So tell the truth, for you coffee lovers, lovers, if you showed up today and Gabriel delivered the sad news that the percolators weren't working and you, there was no coffee to be had, it would at least take a little bit of the edge off of your worship experience being as full as it could have been. Um, so consider with me how common um, this love of coffee is, how it's become a part of our cultural experience. But then I want you to think back about the very first time you ever tasted coffee. Now, this is something there where our coffee lovers and our coffee haters can agree that um, it's something they would have in common. So while some people have maybe loved coffee from the very first sip, many people don't care for it at all the very first time they try it. Especially if it's badly made coffee, it might have a bitter, even a revolting taste to you. Now, I myself am an absolute coffee lover, but I remember the first time that my dad let me have a sip of his coffee. I think it was made from one of those blue cans of Maxwell House coffee. We weren't high quality those days. Um, even though the smell was really alluring to me, the taste was a total turnoff. So I didn't actually come here and stand, uh, to stand in front of you and talk for 30 minutes about coffee this morning. But coffee and my personal testimony of transformation from the coffee averse to a coffee lover is a really helpful parallel to describe another transformation that has happened to me in a way that I would describe myself as being lost and now being found. Just like I probably scrunched up my face the first time I ever tasted coffee, I'm pretty sure that my body physically responded, the hair standing up on the back of my neck when I heard someone refer to God as she. It reproduced all sorts of uncomfortable emotions, profound enough to produce that visceral response in my body. But today, I would say that celebrating and savoring aspects of God that we might call the divine feminine is as, is as important to me as my morning cup of coffee. It's something I can't imagine my life without. Instead of my stomach turning up in knots from a discomfort, Relating to God in feminine terms, particularly in motherly terms, produces in me such joy that it feels warm from my head to my toes and sometimes brings sweet tears to my eyes. So I'm going to humbly ask you to join me in looking back on my journey, on my lost and found journey, as I share with you today. 
Because I believe that there is a distinct and a profound healing that is provided by understanding the feminine nature of God and receiving the motherly love of God. While this might particularly hit home for women, I hope that you'll feel compelled to believe that divine femininity is absolutely a divine gift intended for all humankind. We're eventually going to get to the in the beginning, as in our Bible passage today from the book of Genesis. But let's start with my own stories in the beginning. In the beginning, Elizabeth, West, Elizabeth Verasso, who was Elizabeth Westfall at the time, was a little girl who grew up in a Christian family, going to a Christian church, even attending a Christian school. Now, there's so many parts of my growing up that still hold value to me and experiences that I'm grateful for that, that um, are still true to me today. But there's many parts of my growing up that make me ache. And this one area in particular that as I look at in the rearview mirror, I can identify it as a sense of lostness. I distinctly remember before the age of four, picturing God as an old white man with a white robe and a white beard. Does anybody else recall feeling that way as a child? Um, God and maleness were inseparable in my little mind. But now, how did this happen? Surely nobody explicitly taught me anything of the sort. I mean, that God that I pictured with the, with the white beard, um, he also was surrounded by clouds. And so I thought that we could see heaven from an airplane. Um, at some point, somebody sorted out to me that, no, you can't see heaven from an airplane. But even if old white man God wasn't in the sky above me, he was still most definitely a he. When I examine my faith upbringing, it makes perfect sense that this is what I would absorb and internalize. For nearly all my life, I've only ever heard God referred to as he and father. And for most of my life, my church experience is that I only ever heard men preach. It was only men who took the offering and served the communion. I took this all in, and this is what I absorbed. Men are leaders. God is our ultimate leader. Men are more like God, and God is like a man. Now, women could play the organ. They could sing special music. They could volunteer in the nursery and in Sunday school. A woman missionary might stand in that same spot that a man stood on Sunday morning, but it was to speak to a group of children on a weekday morning in the summer for vacation Bible school. It was implicitly demonstrated to me that women could be helpers, but they couldn't be leaders. Later on, it would be explicitly stated, I would be taught biblical justification for why women can't preach and why all women across all time should remain silent in church. There would be a nice sort of bless your heart explanation about why women are a weaker vessel. Not lesser, just weaker, but really lesser, because that analogy showed me that women just weren't cut out the way men were for having that essence of leadership the kind of godly leadership that was needed in the church and in the world. I learned about heroes from the Bible like Elijah and his, evil, his nemesis, the evil queen Jezebel. Don't you worry, she got hers. She fell out of a window and got eaten by dogs. And I know, because I learned all about it in fourth grade Bible class. Um, Jezebel would become the prime example, the archetype of a woman who rebelled against God and who rebelled against God's structure of authority. I learned about how this whole mess we're in, every fallen, broken, evil, sick part of this world, 
could be traced back to a single decision made by a single woman named Eve. I learned that Eve probably couldn't have helped, though, because women are just really easily deceived. So both implicitly and explicitly, I was taught this takeaway. God is male, and then subsequently males are in charge. Leaders are men. Important decision makers are men. I mean, who is our ultimate leader? God. Jesus. And Jesus was a man, and Jesus called God Father. So my takeaway was this. The truth that I internalized, that my femininity made me different from men, and it also made me different from God. Now, the people who taught me this, they loved the women in their life. They weren't trying to vilify them or take their value away. Women were cherished and esteemed, but with the caveat that they had to stay and do all the things to remain within the appropriate boundaries and limitations. So while I didn't feel particularly vilified just for being a female, I learned what my own place and my own limitations were. I learned how dangerous and destructive it would be if I stepped out of my place or if I stepped beyond the God-ordained limitations. Now, even if you didn't grow up in church like I did, you had plenty of chances to absorb some of these same sorts of mentalities. Um, the church is really just reflecting what history has already shown. Um, across history, women have been property. Women couldn't land, own land, and women couldn't even vote until recently in our own country. Things have gotten better in recent years, but for a while, Disney sure wasn't helping there either. <laughs> Who are all the rescuers in the classic fairy tales? Men! God is a deliverer. God is a rescuer, just like these fairy tale heroes. Is that because of God's masculinity? So whether the message comes from a faith community, the entertainment industry, or just your ordinary experience in American culture, it's easy to see how any of us could grow up with a concept that God is distinctly and exclusively masculine. It's easy for us to expect women to stay within the roles and the boundaries that both the culture and the church have created to protect that male-dominated status quo. Despite how much I did internalize and didn't really question this view of myself and God, I can think of a couple of precise moments when the curtain was pulled back, and I did think to question these ideas. Um, one day, I remember seeing an advertisement created by the brand Always. So yes, it's a feminine hygiene brand. Um, but a camera crew asked a group of grown men and women to demonstrate what it means to throw like a girl or to run like a girl or to fight like a girl. And for your, um, for your benefit, I'm going to totally humiliate myself and show you that um, to run like a girl, <laughs> to throw like a girl, and to fight like a girl. <laughs> and we laugh, but in truth, when I saw the, the counterpart, I wept, and I still get all teary talking about it. Because thankfully, this ad goes on to ask some young girls, what does it mean to throw like a girl? to fight like a girl, to run like a girl. And without reservation, they showed us that that means to run fast, that that means to fight fierce, that that means to throw with might and precision. When I saw those side by side that cut so deep, I thought, how did they, how did we, how did I learn this? How did femininity become synonymous with a weakness and a liability? I started to see the flaws in the world's logic, and it was one of the first major chinks in the armor that protected and sustained my male-dominated view of God. 
Around the same time, I noticed something from my family origin that had never struck me or even bothered me before. Uh, when we were kids, we would take turns saying prayer. God is great. God is good. Um, we would do that rhyming prayer. Um, but 99% out of the time, it was my father who offered the dinner time prayer. Um, and when I started to question these things, I started to feel a sadness. Why wasn't it ever my mother's voice that I heard? And then when visiting as an adult with my own family in my parents' home, the opportunity to pray was offered to my husband. Now, there's great joy in being married to someone who will gladly take that opportunity to pray before a dinnertime meal. But it was mixed with the sadness of, why wasn't I ever asked? Now that I began to pick and prod and question and doubt what the world, the church, and even my own family had taught me about God, men and women, I found myself profoundly sad. My eyes were open to the sense of loss. All this time, I was walking with a limp I didn't know I had. I had a wounded heart that I didn't realize. I had questioned myself, limited myself, and been skeptical and judgmental of any women who I had seen that didn't stay within these lines and boundaries that I had been given. So I proceeded, but only cautiously. I was still handicapped by that limited exposure that I had had of seeing any women lead in the church before. So when I considered membership here as a part of this church, I remember sheepishly asking Brad, who was then a co-pastor with Becca, what's the biblical support of women as pastors? Um, I knew that it felt right to include women in leadership and in preaching, but it wasn't until Brad shared with me about the Apostle Junia, a woman, that I even ever heard that the Bible might have something positive to say about women participating in leadership in the church. But even as I grew in my own confidence in believing in equal standing for men and women for roles in the church, I still carried this baggage. The first time I had the opportunity to preach at Mosaic, I offered up an invitation on Facebook for any friends that might want to come and hear me share. But I had to put a comment with a disclaimer apologizing to whoever might be feeling grumpy about the idea of a woman preaching at church. And this ache, this baggage, this hang-up, this lostness, it was embedded really deep beyond my own strength and ability to shake. So what changed? We're talking about lost and found. How did I go from lost to found? And how did I experience salvation, healing, wholeness, and putting back together? How did I come to realize this lostness and find myself found? What gives me confidence to listen to those aches that tell me that the picture that I was given of God and femininity were sorely lacking? What changed my cringeworthy response into a joyful response when I hear someone talk about divine femininity? Well, it turns out that the Bible has a lot more to offer than just stories about Eve and Jezebel. So let's look at the real in the beginning. Uh, you can follow along on your insert if you want, but I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and verses 26 and 27. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds in the air, the livestock and all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
Now, if you've been here when I preach before, you know that I really like to go back and pick apart the original language and find out some deeper, richer meanings from the language that this was originally written in. So for this passage, that means we're talking about Hebrew. So from Hebrew, in verse 1, the God who created the heavens and the earth is the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim is a masculine noun that simply means God. But the Spirit of God described as hovering over the surface of the waters, is Elohim Ruach, a feminine feminine noun. So right away, from the very first verse in the Bible, neither masculine nor feminine terms get exclusive rights to describe God. Even though we later read in verse 27 that in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them, We cannot look at the nuances of this passage and conclude that God is male, that God prefers male, or God is better reflected in the male than in the female. So this makes me think of and ask other questions about God. Is God quiet or is God loud? Is God strong or is God tender? Is God eminently close or is God present in the farthest reaches of the universe? Is God male or is God female? Neither, both, in a word, yes. God as creator is described with both masculine and feminine nouns. God's image stamped upon all humankind is displayed in what we call male and female. God made humankind in God's image. When God made humans, God was imparting the wholeness of divinity, all of the beauty of maleness, all of the beauty of femaleness, and every point along the spectrum into humankind. To see God clearly is to see God's qualities in terms that our culture might call masculinity or femininity. So I think this is good news for all of us. If God can't be captured in simply what we call humans, male or female, it means that no matter who we are, no matter how we relate to these terms, we can find the fingerprint of God, the image of God, marked on our very selves. We can find ways to relate to God that are not limited by our biological selves or the categories that our culture creates. For most of my upbringing, these images of God that favor the feminine have always taken a backseat to anything that described the masculine. But as it turns out, all the rest of the Bible is full of other examples of this. You don't have to actually look very hard at all. Um, So many of these passages describe the divine feminine in what we might more simply call God our mother. Um, So as I prepare to share some of these examples, I do want to offer a disclaimer. I'm quite obviously a mother. You can't look at my body right now and not know that I'm not a mother. Um, But my line of work also as a birth doula and a childbirth educator means that I am in my element when I'm supporting pregnant women and when I'm celebrating motherhood. I was really, really excited when I narrowed in on this topic to talk about today, and I realized I was going to get to say breast in church. Um, So I could be terribly guilty of getting wrapped up in my excitement about biblical images of God as a mother, as God as a breastfeeding mother, a mama bird protecting her young. And I could painfully exclude people for who that concept of motherhood is painful. It might just be annoyingly worn out, especially if... It's from me, because I talk about it a lot. Um, Or if it's just not of true interest to you. If you are happily childless, if you are painfully childless, if you simply don't own a uterus, 
I promise that there is something that is here for you. So please trust this tenderness that I desire to have with each listener. Stick with me through this. But here's another way to think about it. We're not all mothers, but we all have mothers. We all got here on this earth by growing within the womb of a woman. And it's true that you might have a relationship with your own parents, your mother, or your father that speaks more of pain than tender care. But hopefully, as we dig into these biblical images of God, our mother, you can find some healing and some encouragement, whether it's because of or in spite of your own experience with your own mother. It might even be a relief to some of you who have struggled even more with your fathers to have this other way to relate to God if God the Father is difficult for you. But I think that God our mother has something beautiful to offer every one of us. So I'm just going to read and briefly comment on some of the scripture passages that talk about this. I'm going to start out first with um, a passage I have to admit doesn't provide us the detail to tell tell us if it's referring to a mother or a father, just a loving parent. I think that makes it a good kind of safe place to start, just imagining God as a perfect parent. So here's what we read in Hosea 11, verses 3 and 4. It's God's proclamation of a tender upbringing of Israel. God says, Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they didn't know that it was I that healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. I have to say that I really love that phrase, cords of human kindness. Um, You know those leashes that they make for kids? They look like a little backpack, but they're really a leash. Um, They're ones that when I first heard of them, I said I would never for about my own children, but when Salo was a baby, totally bought one. Um, God is not a parent that has to keep us on a leash in order to keep us safe and to keep us in line and to keep us near. God's kindness connects us and draws us and keeps us, keeps us close to him or her. So these remaining passages that I'm going to share are distinctly about God, our mother. From the book of Isaiah 42, 14, God is described as a woman in labor. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept myself still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. God in labor. God our deliverer, delivering rescue and justice. That labor leads to birth, as Deuteronomy 32, 18 gives a rebuke. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. God who gave birth to humankind. And one of my favorites, even if we, children of God, can forget the God who gave us birth, Isaiah tells us something beautiful in chapter 49, verse 15, about God's inability to forget us. It says, Can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these might forget, yet I will not forget you. When I was pregnant with Selah, I used to have dreams, maybe more accurately nightmares, that I would have given birth and several days would have passed, and then I realized I had never fed her. Um, So when I shared this with my midwife, she very kindly reminded me, and I have gone on to remind many mothers who have that same dream, you're not going to forget to feed your baby. Um, For one thing, your baby is not going to let you forget. Uh, (laughs) The tiniest sound, the tiniest cue of hunger can wake, a, can wake a mother from a deep sleep. 
Um, but furthermore, the hormones of breastfeeding utterly transform the brain of a breastfeeding mother. The hormone oxytocin, we call the love hormone, supports a strong sense of bond between mother and baby. This scripture is so true to my experience as a breastfeeding mother. My sleepy newborn fog of a brain might not be able to tell you my phone number. I might not remember my own name, but I will not forget that baby at my breast. Moving on, it's not just the nourishment that God provides, but several chapters later in Isaiah 66, verse 13, we read, as the mother comforts her children, so I will comfort you. This mothering God provides comfort, but doesn't stop there. Because mother God is our protector, as is powerfully portrayed in Hosea 13, verse 8. Here, the scripture gives us an image of something that we are all familiar with, um, that of a mama bear. If there's one thing you know about a mama bear out with her cubs, what is it? Don't get between them, right? This knowledge has been around for several millennia at least, at least. And Hosea tells us, like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and tear them asunder. And now, I didn't really intend to be spiritual when I picked a name for my birth business, Mama Bird Birth Services. Mama Bird just sounded nice and nurturing. And I love that it's just what my next-door neighbor calls me. She'll ask Frank, is the Mama Bird home? Um, but this Mama Bird image is actually found in Scripture more than one time. I'm going to focus on one. In Deuteronomy 32, 11, and 12, God is described as a mother, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. Do these images of God stir and do something in your heart? Because they do to me. Um, before I began encountering these images, I didn't know that there was a place in my heart that was longing for God, my mother. I didn't know that my own identity and my experience as a woman could be an asset in drawing near to God instead of a liability. I didn't know that I had broken places that needed healing. I didn't know that I needed a salvation that would teach me who I was, a woman created in the image of God. Above and beyond these biblical images that I just shared with you, um, there's one more that I encountered recently that I love so much. I found it beautiful and profound, and I want to share it with you. Um, raise your hands. Has anyone here ever heard of God referred to as El Shaddai? Anybody? Okay. Now, keep your hand up if you heard about it because you heard it as an Amy Grant song in the 80s, right? Okay. All right. So I'm always, I'm always showing my cards as someone who grew up in the Christian bubble. Amy Grant, for those of you who don't know, was one of about four approved artists that if you were a teenager in the 80s, you could listen to. Um, so there's many different names used for God in the Bible. Forms of the divine name El Shaddai appears 48 times. When translated into English, El Shaddai is most typically translated as God Almighty. That's because early Greek translators and subsequent modern translations, which came from that first Greek translations, were based on this understanding and this assumption that Shaddai came from a root word, Shaddad, which means to overpower, to destroy, hence God Almighty, God who you do not want to mess with. However, Jewish sages and even cross-references from the Bible itself seem to suggest that El Shaddai refers instead to a noun, Shaddaiim, which means breast. So El, God, Shaddai with breasts. What do breasts do? They feed babies. 
Before there was infant formula is an alternative way to nourish a newborn baby. Access to a mother's breasts was literally life or death for a newborn. Newborn babies' most basic needs are warmth, nutrition, and comfort, all of which a mother's breasts are wonderfully suited to provide. So you will find translators of the Bible that try to honor this. They're not going to say God with breasts, but they will say God all-sufficient. God who has what each one of us needs, what all of us collectively need, nurture, sustenance, protection, and comfort. So while my faith upbringing taught me that my femaleness was a liability and a limitation, these images of God celebrating typical feminine qualities are so precious to me. They've done salvation work in mending these places in my spirit and filling empty places, giving me a sense of direction when I didn't even know I was lost. I think back about how fearful I was made to feel about the destructive consequences of stepping outside of the boundaries and roles that I thought male God had ordained for women. That kept me in a place of lostness for a long time. But guess what I discovered when I questioned that? Guess what I found out when I stepped onto the other side of that boundary? Was it destruction? Did my inner life and the world around me become disordered and more evil and broken and sick? No. A million times no. I stopped being afraid of women preachers, and then stories and sermons from Lutheran pastor Nadia Boltz-Weber ended up being the trigger that set off a chain reaction that delivered me from crippling anxiety. The book Jesus Feminist by Sarah Bessie didn't destroy my faith. It gave me a richer portrait of Jesus and humanity. I kept on reading her stuff, and I found that her book Out of Sorts has been my field guide for what would otherwise have been a terrifying experience of facing down the questions and the doubts that I have had about my own spiritual upbringing. And then about 11 and a half years ago, when I walked through the door of what was then Vineyard Community Church, if I had seen Becca's name as co-pastor and just slinked away back out the door, I can tell you without a doubt, without exaggeration, I probably wouldn't call myself a follower of Jesus today. Because this church and this community, this place where other women had the chance to be invited to preach, have kept me in Jesus. This safe place where my questions and my doubts didn't get me shunned has been like the unconditional loving embrace of God my mother. God my mother and women who write and preach have borne good, good fruit in my life. And who can argue with good fruit? I'm enthusiastic about sharing my story and my perspective with you today in this room full of all sorts of people because I don't think it's just a message for me. It's not even just for the women here. This is a kind of goodness, foundness, that I think is hopeful for all of humanity. These images of God that refer to typically feminine experiences and traits are valuable to all people. We can all benefit from questioning how our image of God might be a little lopsided and how we might be missing out on nuances of the divine nature because we've not questioned the assumptions that our society has handed us. I believe that there is more of God for us to experience and savor if we can explore beyond the boundaries that we might be keeping God within. We can give our children a beautiful and a powerful gift when we teach them, all of them, that their God is like all the very best things they love about their father, 
and their mother, like all the very best traits that they see in every kind of human. As I implied already, I think our church is pretty wonderful, and I think we're ahead of the curve on this one. So maybe I didn't grow up in a church that esteemed women as leaders and preachers, but I'm really thankful that my kids are. And my kids also get to grow up in a church where they serve coffee, so there's that. (laughs) Yet even as we strive for more wholeness and more beautiful representation of divine masculinity and divine femininity, many parts of the church and many parts of the world are still beholden to a purely masculine God. We are swimming upstream on this one. Many women around the world are daily in danger of being victims of physical and sexual assault. And for them, God as a man is a dangerous and untrustworthy kind of God. We have the opportunity to share the good news with them that God is not just a loving father, but a loving mother. Understanding and freely freely expressing God in feminine terms isn't just about the warm fuzzies because most of us think moms are pretty cool. It's a powerful tool for bringing justice, deliverance, and the reality of God's love and power to some of the most vulnerable and powerful members of our human family. If we receive and start to act out of God's mother heart for humanity and creation, let me tell you, this world better watch out. Socially and politically, some of the best things that have happened in our country have been mom-led. Moms get stuff done, have you noticed? Do you know why we have protections and equal educational opportunities for children with special needs? Because their moms would not settle for any less. Do you know that mothers of drunk driving, what they accomplish? Cut the rate of drunk driving incidents, drunk driving deaths in half. So let's recall that image of a mama bear from Hosea 13.8. What if we could really embrace and harness and release that mama bear heart of God onto the injustices of the world? Watch out. What a glorious, powerful opportunity we have to partner with God in God's work of salvation as we participate in mothering this world. And then simply looking inward, I think we can all find greater intimacy with God and greater strength for walking through this world if we would dare to ask ourselves, How could I more fully embrace the divine feminine? Now, this might sound like a reach for for some of you. Um, Your own experiences in life, your biological and sociological makeup might make this idea feel tricky or weird or totally uncomfortable. Um, But let's swing back around to where we started with coffee. Even if coffee in its purest essence is something that is practically divine and something to be praised, something that some people still need a good amount of cream and sugar in order to enjoy. Some people start by enjoying the aroma of coffee, or um, they can maybe just tolerate a bowl of coffee-flavored ice cream. Some people take a while, and so we're not all going to be like the aficionado who has their own um, pour-over, beans that they roasted themselves, single origin. They have words that you don't even know or understand to describe their cup of coffee. So we're not all going to be like that. But you could be the one who takes it with a whole bunch of cream and sugar because you think there might be something there to it. 
So think of these opportunities that I'm going to offer you, um, these suggestions, as a way to grow your divine palate, to savor more nuances of God. And it's okay if you just take a little sip. It's okay if you need what feels like an embarrassing amount of cream and sugar to try something new. But how about this? Let's try to maybe begin to experiment with language, even and especially if it makes you feel uncomfortable. Maybe when you think about the Trinity, you refer to God the Father, but you call the Holy Spirit she. Maybe you'll find it challenging or meaningful to flip the pronouns in some of your favorite worship songs. So in your car or in the shower or wherever you can sing without any inhibition, see what it feels like to sing, you are a good, good mother. It's who you are, and I'm loved by you. Maybe try reading some passages of scripture and replace the references that call God as he with the gender-neutral pronoun z, reminding yourself that neither he nor she completely captures who God is. So while um, it might be more appealing or feel less strange for women to give these things a try, I have to emphasize how powerful it is when men are willing to do this and participate in these sort of language switch-ups. Affirmation of the divine feminine means so much more to my female heart when it's delivered with a man's voice. I'll never forget the rush of emotions, the spiritual healing, the hot tears down my face when I heard a man sing an adaptation of an old hymn, delivering these lyrics to my ears. This is my mother's world. So salvation has come to me, your sister, because of a man participating in that experience. So to close out today, I'm going to invite you to participate in an exercise, an experiment of sorts. We are going to be graced by the dulcet tones of Jamie Grimble's voice reading a poem called God Our Mother. It was written by someone named Allison Woodward. So as Jamie reads, I would encourage you to close your eyes, to just listen to the words, asking God to reveal, dare I say, her divine motherly love as you listen and examine these images that these words create. To be a mother is to suffer, to travail in the dark, stretched and torn, exposed in half-naked humiliation, subjected to indignities for the sake of a new life. To be a mother is to say, this is my body, broken for you. And in the next instant, In response to the created primal hunger, this is my body, take and eat. To be a mother is to be self-empty, to neither slumber nor sleep. So attuned you are to the cries in the night, offering the comfort of yourself and the assurances of I'm here. To be a mother is to weep, over the fighting and exclusions and wounds your children inflict on one another, to long for reconciliation and brotherly love, and when all is said and done, to gather all parties, the offender and the offended, into the folds of your embrace, and to whisper in their ears that they are beloved. To be a mother is to be vulnerable, 
to be misunderstood, railed against, blamed for the heartaches of the bewildered children who don't know where to else to cast their angst they feel over their own existence in this perplexing universe. To be a mother is to hoist on your hips those whom your image is imprinted, bearing the burden of their weight, rejoicing in their returned affection, delighting in their wonder, bleeding in the presence of their pain. To be a mother is to be accused of sentimentality one moment and injustice the next. To be the receiver of endless demands, absorber of perpetual complaints, reckoner of bottomless needs. To be a mother is to be an artist, a keeper of memories past, weaver of stories untold, visionary of lives looming ahead. To be a mother is to be the first voice listened to and the first disregarded. To be a mender of broken creations and the comforter of distraught children whose hands wrought them. To be a mother is to be a touchstone and source, bestower of names, influencer of identities, life giver, life shaper, empath, healer, and original love. <laughs>